You will never appreciate the ministry of Elijah unless you understand the day in which he lived. God's people had no spiritual leadership from the kings, zero in the northern kingdom where he serves God's people. The nation is on skids. They're going deeper and deeper into depravity and their future is bleak. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Buford, South Carolina. We begin a new study today, a biographical look at the prophet Elijah. The times of Elijah were not unlike our times, with rampant wickedness and depravity and a lack of spiritual leadership in the land. But our study from 1 Kings will show that one godly man can make a difference. All it takes is one righteous individual to stand up to the cancel culture. And of course, when God is with that man or woman, anything can happen. Let's join Dr. Brogy in chapter 17 and a message entitled, Trusting God in Difficult Times. Would you take your Bibles please this morning and turn to the book of 1 Kings. If you're new to the Bible, you can just find Psalms, that's about dead center, and then go to the left, and 1 Kings is right before First and Second Chronicles. I want to begin a brand new series for the next seven Sundays, a biographical study on the life and times of Elijah the prophet. He was a man who lived in very, very difficult times, much like we're living in. And yet Elijah was a man of God who dared to trust God in the midst of great difficulty. It's been refreshing for me to study this man's life again because he's so real. And I suppose there is nothing that is so repulsive as phoniness in the spiritual realm. But there's nothing that is so magnetic as integrity. A man who walks with God, that's the kind of man this man was. And when you study his life, you'll see there's not a shred of phoniness in him. He is what he preaches through and through. Problems, he's full of problems. Phoniness, absolutely none. And by the way, have you ever wondered why so much of the, bio, of the Bible is biographical in nature? God the Holy Spirit loves to take ordinary people like you and me, people who walked with God, people who even failed with the Lord and to teach us by their lives. We think sometimes of a man like Elijah that somehow he is different. But the New Testament reminds us that Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. He was cut out of the same piece of fabric that you have been cut out of. Just like you and I, he has been made in the image of God. And there are so many lessons that we can learn from studying the scripture biographically. I mean, you read of a man like Abraham or Moses or Paul or Barnabas or whoever it might be, and you just come away challenged. And I believe that we will come away challenged having studied this man. First Kings 17, he suddenly, quickly, without notice, appears on the pages of Scripture, and as we will see before we're finished, he will leave just as fast. 1 Kings 17, I hope you have a Bible. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Follow along. Now, Elijah the Tishbite was one of the settlers of Gilead. And he said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. The word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook 
Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Now, if you're one who has studied history and the people who have made their marks on history, you know that it's impossible to separate the greatness of the person from the time frame in which they lived. It's true in military history, whether Napoleon or Lee or Grant or Patton or MacArthur. It's certainly true in political history, whether it's Abraham Lincoln or Winston Churchill or Dr. Martin Luther King. And it's certainly true in spiritual history. And so if we are to understand the life and times of Elijah and the impact that he made, we need to understand something about the time frame in which he lived. In fact, sadly for many people, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, is a closed book. It's, it's difficult to understand. And the reason is because we can't always put it together historically. So let's think for just a few moments before we begin this seven-week series about the historical time frame in which this man lived and served God. Now, I know for some of you who are listening, history was not your favorite subject in school, but it needs to be in the realm of biblical history because the Bible is important. It is the Word of God. And sadly, for the first half of the Bible, for many of us, it's the clean section of our Bible. Why? Because we're often intimidated by it. Maybe the exception would be the Proverbs and the Psalms. And one of the reasons that we are intimidated by the Old Testament is because we can't put it together historically. So let me begin this series by giving you first a, a broad view of the Old Testament so that we can pinpoint the time frame in which Elijah lived and served. And if you can understand this broad view, you can take almost any book of the Old Testament and accordingly understand where it fits. If you remember, God founded the nation of Israel through a man named Abraham. Before Abraham, every man of God was a Gentile. But God starts a new nation with a man named Abram. And initially, if you remember, he had two sons, the son of promise, who was called Yitzhak, Isaac, and the son of the bondwoman, Ishmael. Ishmael, in turn, had 12 sons that formed the Arab nations of the world. Isaac, the son of promise, had two children, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob became the line through which the Messiah would come. He had 12 sons, and those 12 sons corporately, after he was renamed Yitzrael, were called simply Israel, the sons of Israel. If you remember, a famine came in the land of Israel, and so the 12 tribes end up in Egypt, and God, through the watch care of Joseph, provides not just for the Jewish people, but for the surrounding nations. Joseph dies, the people multiply, and Exodus opens by reminding us there came a time when a new king arose who did not know Joseph. And so just as God had prophesied to Abraham, they were in the land of Egypt for 400 years. But then, just as God prophesied, he released his people through the leadership of Moses. Moses' life was 120 years. It's easy to follow. It's 40, 40, 40. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, 
uh, of uh, where he was a sheep rancher and then 40 years again in the wilderness as he carries the people to the edge of the promised land. He dies, and after his death, Joshua steps up. And of course, after Joshua dies, within one generation, the people of Israel forsook God. In one generation, degeneration took place. In that period of unbelief, we typically refer to it as the time of the judges, where the Jewish people were ruled by various judges. But eventually, the people wanted a king like the surrounding nations, and so God gave them the desires of their heart. And we enter into what we call the period of the monarchy or the period of the kingdom. The first three kings in Israel's history were the most famous, SDS, Saul, David, and Solomon. But if you remember, for 120 years, each man, Saul, David, Solomon, each served exactly 40 years, for 120 years. So for 120 years, the kingdom of Israel was united. But if you remember, due to Solomon's moral compromise, the kingdom split north and south. Hold your finger here and go to 1 Kings 11 and verse 1. 1 Kings 11 and verse 1. And I want you to follow along. During the latter time of Solomon's reign, he compromised himself morally by marrying foreign wives, unbelievers. And that caused his heart to be drawn away and to fall into idolatry. And so God judged Solomon. He disciplined him. Look at 1 Kings 11 and verse 1. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, and therein lies the problem. Now, notice uh, verse 4. For it came about when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. Now, the consequences are spelled out beginning in, look at verse 9. Now, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. And let me just say something in passing. You cannot violate the clear teaching of God's word without suffering the consequences. And so, beginning now in 1 Kings 11 and verse 11, we read, So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. And so Rehoboam steps up to the throne, uh, Solomon's son. He foolishly listens to the younger uh, leaders in the nation, and he makes some very stupid mistakes. And in his pigheadedness and his greed, the nation divides in two. Here's a map that will give you a picture of what it looked like during that time. In 931, Solomon's son Rehoboam, he causes a split. And so remember, there were 12 tribes. Ten of the tribes in the north form what, as this map shows, is called Israel. And that can be a little confusing as you study the scripture. Because sometimes the term Israel is used to refer to all 12 tribes, especially up until the time the kingdom is united. 
But then after the kingdom divides, Israel typically is a term that's used to describe the 10 northern tribes. And they form their own kingdom of sorts under a fellow named Jeroboam. He doesn't want the people to go back to Jerusalem to worship the one place God had specified. And so he creates his own centers of worship using bulls as emblems. And of course, from 931 BC to 209, the northern kingdom, again called Israel, they have 20 kings, and every single king in the northern kingdom is wicked. The two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they go after the name of the larger tribe. They are called uh, Judah. And they had 20 kings as well, 12 that are wicked, only eight that are good. So the northern kingdom, Israel, ignores God's command. They begin to dry up spiritually. They turn to an idolatrous lifestyle. And so God sent these different prophets to warn them. And in 722, just as God had predicted, the Assyrians came down and carried them away into captivity. The southern kingdom went another 136 years. And then in 586 BC, just as God had prophesied, the Babylonians came and carried away the two southern tribes. So to keep it straight, just remember, I comes before J, A comes before B. Israel is carried away by the Assyrians. Judah is carried away by the Babylonians, all right? Now, I comes before J, A comes before B. It's just a simple way in which to capsulize in your thinking how this history unfolded. So when you read an Old Testament book, one of the questions you always want to ask is at what time in Israel's history did this book take place? If you understand, for instance, that Elijah was a prophet to the northern kingdom, so he is living after the kingdom is united. It's split north and south. He serves the northern kingdom, Israel. Remember, 20 kings, every single one of them are wicked men. Terrible leadership. And uh, it helps you to understand the time frame in which he lived. In fact, any of the Old Testament books that are named after the prophet who wrote them, there are 17 that will take you from Isaiah to Malachi. You want to ask, did they preach before the exile? Did they preach during the exile? Or did they preach after the exile? Before the exile, we have what we call pre-exilic prophets. Some of those prophets preached to the northern kingdom. Some of those prophets preached to the southern kingdom, Judah. And a few of them preached to both. During the exile, uh, during the time of the Babylonian captivity, there were just two prophets that preached, Daniel and Ezekiel. We call them exilic prophets. After the exile, there were just three prophets that preached, uh, namely Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So Elijah lives during the time frame after the United Kingdom. Uh, the kingdom is the men split. He's preaching before the northern ten tribes, Israel as they're called, are carried away by the Assyrians. And so this time of captivity where um, the Assyrians carry them away is to follow after Elijah's ministry. So he is living during the time of the kings, so to speak. 
And so we have the book of First and Second Kings. And as you read through those books, much like the Chronicles, though the Chronicles largely focuses on the southern kingdom, Judah, you'll read of two kings ruling at the same time. That's because there's a northern kingdom and there is a southern kingdom. And if you read here, 1 Kings 12 through 16, you discover that with the exception of a king named Asa, who did right in the sight of the Lord, all of these kings were evil. And Israel goes deeper and deeper and deeper into depravity. Look at 1 Kings 16. Turn back a page in your Bible to 1 Kings 16. And look, if you will, at verse 29 for just a moment. 1 Kings 16, 29. We're told now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria, that was their capital, 22 years. And so this verse informs us that Asa, whom the Bible says did right in the sight of the Lord in chapter 15, um, he is ruling over the two southern tribes, Judah. He does so for 22 years. And at the same time, you have this fellow Ahab, and he is ruling over the 10 northern tribes called Israel. And he is an important figure in the Old Testament. That God gives him six chapters of press. Look at verse 30. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. That's his claim to fame. He did more evil than all of the other kings who went before him. Out of all the kings that are listed in Omri, uh, Ahab's dad up until that time is rated, according to verse 25 of chapter 16, as the pinnacle of evil to that day. But suddenly, the award is wrenched from his daddy and it's given to Ahab, who uh, supersedes his own father in evil. And so Ahab steps on the scene and it looks like the Antichrist has arrived centuries before. I mean, he's evil beyond evil. Look at verse 31. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. This man's heart is so hard, his conscience is so seared, that the scripture says here it was a trivial thing for him to live in wickedness. God tells us that Ahab's Baal worship was far more deplorable than Jeroboam's bull worship. If Jeroboam's idolatry was like drinking polluted water, Ahab's idolatry was like drinking out of a sewer pipe. It was evil beyond evil. His heart was so hard, the scripture says that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshiped him. Baal worship on any account is absolutely lethal. But what makes it so terrible is that it has its own evangelist, namely this woman, Jezebel. She's not content to keep Baal worship within the synagogue there on the grounds. She wants to spread it across the kingdom. Have you ever noticed, as you read through the book of Kings, that only one king's wife is actually mentioned? Why is that? Well, I think for two significant reasons. Number one, she wore the pants in the marriage. She controlled Ahab. In chapter 21 and verse 25, we're told, surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. She led the family spiritually. 
But secondly, she was the one who introduces Baal worship into Israel. She's the driving force behind Baal worship. Her daddy had Baal in his name, just like many of the prophets have El or God in their name. And Jezebel, she's determined to make a strong beachhead to change the whole direction of the nation. You know, when I study her life, it appears to me that she was demon-possessed because she has all the marks of demon possession. She's infamous for her evil. Look at verses 32 and 33. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. We're going to discover that's Baal's girlfriend, so to speak. And what did God think of this king's throne? Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And so that is the day in which Elijah ministers. And you will never appreciate the ministry of Elijah unless you understand the day in which he lived. God's people had no spiritual leadership from the kings, zero in the northern kingdom where he serves God's people. The nation is on skids. They're going deeper and deeper into depravity, and their future is bleak. But Elijah is not afraid. He was willing to face the forces of hell because he was called of God. He believed that God was alive and that God was able to do exactly all that he promised. He is living in a generation literally of spiritual pygmies, people who have no backbone, people who are unwilling and apparently unable by their unbelief to stand up for God. And so that forces us to ask a question this morning. What was it that made Elijah so courageous? How could he live with such victory in such difficult times? Well, if you printed out your note-taking outline there from the website, you can see the title of this morning's message is Trusting God in Difficult Times. And I want to underscore two keys, two essentials that come to the surface of this section of Scripture as to why this man was so courageous. So let's first consider the courage of Elijah. How is it that he could believe God in his generation? Well, first, because of his courage. Notice how verse 1 begins. Now, Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now that's a very, very courageous statement. This Jewish prophet, Elijah, whose name means my God is Jehovah, or my name is Yahweh, and Ahab would have immediately picked up on the meaning of his name. This Jewish prophet comes into the presence of this king, this king who thought he had embalmed and buried Jehovah worship and had replaced it with the worship of Baal. And he is standing, Elijah, this prophet, before the king and his wife Jezebel, according to chapter 18 and verse 4, who is killing all the prophets of God, which again forces us to ask another question. How did he muster the courage to stand before this king who could have easily have taken his life? Where did he get such boldness? And how do we get that kind of courage today? Well, there are two obvious reasons that are highlighted in the text. They're in your note-taking outline. First, he was convinced of God's power. 
He was a man who was convinced of God's power. We read, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. It didn't matter to Elijah that Ahab had declared Jehovah God worship dead and Baal worship alive. Ahab thought he had basically interred the worship of the one true God that he believed was a fake God and that Baal should be worshiped. And so here is this man who is not overwhelmed by the circumstances, but courageously steps into the presence of this wicked king. He doesn't believe his hands are tied. He doesn't believe that God is weak. He believes that God is able to do all that he has promised. The writer of the Hebrews reminds us of that. And he's writing in the context not to lost people, but to save people. And there it says in 11.6, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. That is, meaning that he is alive. That's the context. Not that he exists. That's a given in Scripture. But that God is alive. That God is able to do precisely what he wants to do. That he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So Elijah knew he served the one true God who is alive. And he knew something about the character of the one true God. As we studied the book of Daniel a few years ago, Daniel 11:32 says, the people who know their God will display strength and take action. And so Elijah is displaying strength and Elijah is taking action. He's there in the presence of King Ahab, not in his own strength, but he is there in the strength of God. Notice as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, and I hope at home you have a Bible in your lap and you're looking at it because you'll get so much more out of any sermon I preach if you have God's word in your hands. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand. Do you see what he's saying? Elijah is saying, I'm not just standing here before you, Ahab. I am standing in this place before the God who lives. By the way, how do you convince an unbelieving world that God is alive? You convince an unbelieving world that God is alive by the aliveness and the power that is in your life. The most convincing thing of true biblical Christianity is its power to change a life. The world is not overwhelmed and convinced by your argumentation and by all of your apologetics. The world is not overwhelmed by your success story. And that's what we want to do. We want to parade across platform all of these great success stories in evangelicalism. The world is convinced only by that which it cannot produce. And that is a changed life. Freedom from the guilt of sin. Freedom from the slavery of sin. That's what will grab an unbelieving world's attention. When Christ-likeness is portrayed in your home, when godly children who display the fruit of the Spirit begin to exhibit a different kind of life than their peers. Do you remember shortly after Pentecost, the Jewish leaders, the elders and the scribes saw the apostles and they made this statement in Acts 4. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Only God can do that. And that's why Bible-based Christianity, because there's a whole lot of fake Christianity out there today that has very little to do with what we read in the Bible. 
but Bible-based Christianity will revolutionize a person's life. And that's what God uses, among other things, to get people to question. We are told that faith comes from hearing the Word of God, and the Word of God is also described as a lamp at our feet, a light to our path. Also, we're told that God's Word is sharper than a two-edged sword, able to discern the thoughts and intentions of a man's heart. Is it any wonder that without the Bible, we are helpless and clueless? Tomorrow, we'll continue our look at the prophet Elijah as we study this man of God. To listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures app or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program ELI-1. Join us again tomorrow as we continue our message, Trusting God in Difficult Times, as we search the scriptures.